This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Is it easier for an incompetent man to get a leadership role than it is for an accomplished, incompetent woman? The answer is yes, at least according to our next guest. Dr. Tomas Chimuro Premusic is a chief talent scientist at Manpower Group. He's also a professor of business psychology at University College London and Columbia University. He says the issue of lack of female leaderships can be linked to the problem of differentiating confidence and competence. A man who displays a strong, all-knowing, and perhaps even charming personality can mask incompetence in their job. He also says that while women tend to be more humble and sensitive, scientific evidence shows that they are more likely to adapt adopt more effective leadership strategies than their male counterparts. He writes about this in his new book titled, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? And it's a pleasure to have Tomas joining us right now. Tomas, welcome. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. How prevalent is it, do you think, that that these kind of circumstances exist and you have an incompetent boss? Well, it's very prevalent, certainly much more common than people think. Um, I used to bore people with data and statistics. Now um, I kind of recommend a much quicker way to find out about the prevalence of incompetent managers, which is to just go to Google and type my boss is or my manager is (laughs) and see what people think of their leaders. Uh, Things like crazy, abusive, unbearable, toxic, and a lot of other things that are too rude to repeat here come up. Um, We also know from engagement surveys that only about 30% of people like their jobs. Most of people who dislike their job and leave organizations do so because of their direct line manager or supervisor. And people sometimes decide to leave traditional employment altogether and become entrepreneurs or work for themselves because they have been traumatized by their previous boss. So incompetence is the norm when it comes to leadership and we also know that masculinity and certainly being male is the norm as well my book explores whether these two things are connected the fact that most leaders are male and most leaders are incompetent are actually causally linked or not and i i I do find some uh, causal connections do you believe then as we see more female leaders uh, taking roles in the c-suite in offices that some of this problem will dissipate on its own no actually, because if the current rules of the game don't change, then and we focus on gender as opposed to talent or potential, which is what we should be focusing on, then even though the number of biological females that might occupy leadership positions will increase, dispositionally, from a style, personality perspective, they will be hyper-masculine. They will out-male males in masculinity, and they will still show these reckless, narcissistic, uh, bold, overconfident, and even deluded tendencies that are responsible for poor levels of leadership when the leaders are men as opposed to women. So this becomes an important area to focus on uh, for yourself, but also companies and employees. I would imagine because of the focus on on the role uh, of what a leader is in a company and, and how that kind of atmosphere and culture is set, is set forward. Absolutely. And so, you know, we have to understand that leaders are responsible for creating culture. Culture doesn't just emerge out of the blue. 
So when companies have toxic and counterproductive low performance culture, that is a result, a direct result of the behaviors and values of the leader. And we also have to understand that actually we've known for a long time, there are decades of systematic research as to what good leaders look like. They are on average more competent, they are more humble, they are more self-aware, they are more coachable, they have better people skills, and they have more integrity. And yet, even though most people agree theoretically with these qualities or competencies as being um, pivotal to leadership effectiveness, we keep on selecting leaders with a very different profile. They tend to be confident rather than competent, they tend to be charismatic rather than humble, and they are often narcissistic as opposed to having integrity. Uh, so it, it also sounds like employees are either intentionally not doing enough to to kind of call these situations out when they occur. Maybe there is a fear of calling out the boss in this process as well. Yes, absolutely. And but it makes sense that this is indeed the case because everybody gets promoted, rewarded. Um, or, um, you know, kind of a, everybody advances their career based on managing up. Uh, this is particularly problematic with leaders because leadership should be about managing down and turning a group of individuals into high-performing teams. When leaders are more focused on politicking, on sucking up to their bosses or managing up, they get rewarded. And the same goes for employees. Um, you know, we often ask in our research we ask employees, how many of you feel that you can uh, honestly provide your boss with, um, you know, kind of a honest, candid, critical feedback on their performance mm -hmm. and critique them? And only a minority of people say yes, those people are probably about to lose their jobs because even though leaders should be evaluated by their followers and direct reports, their direct reports and followers get rewarded if they actually lie to their leaders and suck up to them. One of the, the elements that you bring up in this book as part of uh, the problem that, that is kind of brought forward here is the fact that I guess in the past and maybe to a degree today is that men in general think that they are smarter than women. Yes, and it's important to understand that everyone is overconfident to begin with. So, well, not everyone, but there is a general tendency for humans to be overconfident, to be overly optimistic. Most of us, if we could choose between uh, painful, maybe even traumatic um, and hard-to-digest reality check or a distorted view of the reality that makes us feel better about ourselves, would choose the latter, but this tendency to self-deceive is particularly striking in men, more so than in women. So humans are overconfident in general, but men are more overconfident than women, and men get rewarded more for being overconfident. If you are unjustifiably pleased with yourself, unaware of your limitation, and you come across as overconfident, but you are a man, people would be more likely to say, wow, this person is leadership material, let's hire this guy, they seem to know what they're talking about. Whereas if displays of overconfidence are detected or perceived in women, uh, we call those individuals pathologically ambitious, bulldozers, and we're afraid of them. And what we should do, of course, is not to encourage women to be as overconfident as men, but to correct our standards and our evaluation criteria so we actually focus on competence rather than over confidence. Uh, the book is Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? Thomas Chamorro Pramuzic joining us on the phone. Uh, he is uh, uh, with uh, 
with uh, Manpower Group, also a professor of business psychology at University College London and Columbia University. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I I wonder then, to a degree, does this also, or I should say, is this also impacted because of, of, with some companies, how the board of directors is is, uh, brought together as well? Yeah, everything starts at the top and trickles down. Um, you know, so um, if you want to diagnose the problem and especially change the problem, it starts at the top, right? So, um, you know, I remember a story from David Ogilvy, the big advertising tycoon of the 60s, who wrote the book Confessions of an Adman, and he said that at his firm, whenever they recruited someone, and he was the founder, chair, and CEO of the company, the only onboarding process was to give that individual a babushka doll, a matryoshka, you know, one of these dolls <laughs> where you always have one yeah. smaller than it. That's and right. you would just tell the person, look, if you hire people who are smaller than you, we will become a company of dwarves. If you hire people who are bigger than you, we will become a company of giants. Of course, if, if, if people are incompetent at the top, then that uh, only snowballs down and uh, you have not just people who are worse and worse, but actually toxic cultures that are created and make things worse even for people who are talented and, and, and well-intended. Why is it that then maybe we don't see enough of this combining of, uh, of IQ with EQ that you talk about? Well, I think, first of all, we have to understand that we do see it because, um, you know, this isn't an issue of our companies getting right or wrong, but how well are companies doing talent management and particularly leadership selection and development? And the evidence is out, out there, both from independent scientific studies and from studies exploring the drivers of effective corporations and business results, that companies that are more meritocratic, less nepotistic, less political, more data-driven in their talent identification processes, who end up with leaders with higher IQ and EQ, actually outperform their competitors. They have higher revenues, higher profits, higher uh, market cap. Their uh, staff are more engaged. They have higher net promoter scores. They have higher productivity and innovation indices. And so there's no secret. The ROI is there. Some companies understand it better than others and are better able to apply the science to their practices. And that's why also they have sustainable growth and sustainable uh, strong market cap. And then that emotional intelligence uh, ends up being an important factor when you're talking about leaders that are that are either honest and or ethical as well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, these things are also somewhat cyclical. We have spent decades selecting for leaders with, um, you know, a very overconfident personality who uh, are likely to indulge in reckless risks, who are very focused on results and maybe in in the best case uh, or in the best instances have a lot of technical expertise but sort of neglected uh, things like empathy, humility, integrity. So I think that's why there is a premium today for leaders who do display these more feminine features, you know, who are able to connect with their followers, who are able to mentor others, who are able to um, put themselves aside and care about the interests of their teams and followers first. 
By the way, the more artificial intelligence will automate the kind of algorithmic aspects of leadership and things like processing and managing data, the more we will require leaders with high EQ and high emotional intelligence because empathy is the last frontier for AI. Do you think that then there is also a generational component to this as well? Because leadership, if you go back the last 50 or 60 years, was viewed as one thing. But I I, I think many people believe that as millennials have kind of taken over a lot of these roles and then the next generations behind it, that there's a, a, a significant potential that the, the thoughts around leadership could potentially change. Yeah, and so here I have mixed views. You know, I think the evidence is more nuanced than um, the media or the press uh, often suggests. Um, first of all, there's not that much data to look at generations. A lot of these data report simply on age differences. And we know that younger people are typically more curious, more open-minded, less hierarchical, and more anti-authoritarian than older people. But we don't know if when these millennials who are already in management and often leadership positions grow older, they won't become as conservative, traditional, and hierarchical as their uh, parents or their grandparents. On the other hand, there's some good data suggesting that narcissism levels have been rising for about seven or eight decades, and that is generational. And it's not something that we need to blame millennials for. I mean, if the trend continues, then the next generation will be more narcissistic, the one after that more narcissistic. And in 50 years' time, when we look back at Kim Kardashian or Kanye West, we will look at them as examples of very humble, modest people. <laughs> wow. I didn't, I didn't necessarily expect we would get, get that, because I don't know necessarily if you would expect that uh, of those people. But it's interesting you say that narcissism Narcissism is on the increase and, is, and has been for, for decades now because I don't think anybody would associate uh, the millennial generation with, with a high level of narcissism. Well, you know, again, I don't, I don't like to point uh, the finger at millennial. Right. I would look at our wider culture and some of the values that are being uh, endorsed or promoted. Okay. Just look at the typical advice that we hear out there for people who want to be leaders. Things like, oh, don't worry about what people think of you. If you think you're great, you are. Uh, just focus on yourself. You can be anything you want if you dream it, etc. And all those things promote a self-centered narcissistic mindset. Uh, in contrast, we don't hear things that we should hear if we're giving people sensible advice, you know, care a lot about the reputation that you have. You should actually try to manage your image and your reputation so that others find you rewarding to deal with and that you are considerate, altruistic, pro-social, even glorifying disruptors and people that are rebellious. Sometimes it does pay off, but, you know, clearly no society can function if everybody is focused on themselves and everybody thinks they can do whatever they want because they're entitled to do so. And and leaders with some of these qualities, I, I would would hope uh, would have the ability or the recognition to be able to change or at least want to change over the course of their careers. Correct. I think that's a very underrated quality in effective leaders or people with leadership potential. I would call it coachability. You know, the, yeah. the ability to be, well, curious, humble, self-critical, pay attention to actual feedback, admit when you're doing things wrong, and actually not be deluded or overconfident, but even feel a little bit uncomfortable about that gap that you find between where you want to be and where you actually are. And I think 
all exceptional achievers have an inherent inferiority complex or an imposter syndrome in a way because they never believe in their own hype. They always want to keep going and achieve something that is for the greater good of progress or society. And that's because fundamentally they have this ability to remain dissatisfied with their accomplishments. But it sounds like that you don't necessarily, that that type of a person, that type of a persona does not have to necessarily have to have a failure uh, of a significant level, uh, getting fired from a job, whatever it might be, uh, in order to recognize that, that these changes are necessary. Correct. They have to, in a way, be able to anticipate uh, or even learn, you know, we, we always hear this cliche phrase, oh, you know, that learning from mistakes or experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted to get or, you know, think all these kind of nice and uh, memorable phrases. But actually, I think the smartest leaders and the most coachable individuals are able to learn from their successes. They know that even when things went right and when they achieved something, maybe it was because they got lucky and they still are critical enough to understand what they could have done better and see some of their negative behaviors, even when things are going really well, as opposed to being blinded by their own accomplishments. One of the chapters you have in the book is titled Learning to Distrust, Distrust, excuse me, Our Instincts. And, and I would think that that has to be a significant issue within this entire component here in that so many people, whether they be employees, middle managers, maybe even the board of directors, may have one thought in their process, but they may not trust it enough to make a change or, or want to make a move of some kind. Yes, and I think, you know, it speaks to the more complex nature of leadership today. And and when I say today, I'm not comparing it to 10 or 50 years ago. I'm comparing it to 200,000 years ago, you know, when leadership was very easy to observe directly. If somebody looked strong, brave, tall, fearless, and these people were usually men, we knew we should follow them and they would protect us from the threats. Today, leadership is about a range of abstract intellectual, even emotional skills and competencies that can't be observed directly, but we still think that we can. So even smart, professionally skilled and sophisticated executives will tell you if you ask them, how do you know whether somebody has talent for leadership? Oh, I know it when I see it. I just know. (laughs) And the evidence shows that although we all love our intuition, most of us are not as intuitive as we think. And there's no excuse today for playing it by ear and not looking at data, not looking at evidence. There's a well-established science for identifying leadership potential. We should distrust our instincts and follow the data. So what do you think then a a good leader looks like today? And how do you think that this will continue to develop in the years to come? I think a good leader, you know, today I always use the example of Angela Merkel because uh, I think she epitomizes a lot of the qualities that on the one hand are very obviously relevant for leadership potential and on the other hand are so often neglected or, uh, you know, not glamorous enough for us to pay attention to or remember. First of all, they need to be competent. Secondly, they need to be quite objective, fair, unbiased, non-ideological. But then there's a high degree of people skills, um, altruism, humility, coachability to the point that you can make non-ideological, non-emotional, non-impulsive decisions. And if you think about the average uh, manager today, high-performing manager, 
they're mostly quite boring, like Angela Merkel. You know, there's no thrills or scandals about them. Uh, they're very predictable. Their staff know what to expect. And if you couple that with integrity and competence, you get a high-performing manager, and these things are not lost at the higher levels of leadership. People want to work for others who are not self-centered, who are competent and objective, and who are able to understand them and judge them objectively to get the best out of them. So there are situations where where women definitely have a, a distinct advantage uh, in terms of the potential of leadership, and I would also think that it has to be a, on an individual-by-individual basis. Absolutely. It's always on an individual-by-individual basis. You know, the gender discussion always gets people excited or passionate about, but I I argue for uh, talent identification and the evaluation of um, leadership potential at the individual level. Uh, It does follow when you measure something well at the individual level that there are group differences. And in this instance, what's somewhat peculiar is that, if anything, there are slight advantages that favor women rather than men, and yet there is this disproportionate over-representation of men in uh, leadership positions. But ultimately, what I'm arguing for is that the best um, gender diversity intervention is to focus on talent rather than gender. If you're able to identify and select and develop individuals with the biggest talent or potential for leadership, you will not just have more women in leadership, but you will have slightly more women than men in leadership. And finally, I think a lot of men are unfairly overlooked or um, rejected or excluded from leadership identification programs today because they don't match the traditional masculine archetypes of a leader that we have in mind. You know, they are kind of in a way, they are more feminine than we expect them to be. But that also means that they are more self-critical, more humble, more coachable, and more self-aware. And I need leaders with these characteristics. Right. And again, going back to something we mentioned before, is the fact in the end, you want that leader to have the most positive impact that he or she possibly can. Exactly. The only way to judge whether somebody is a good leader or a bad leader is in terms of how they impact on their teams, subordinates, followers, organizations, nations. It's the same at the level of political leaders. And yet we have a tendency to focus too much on the individual success that the leader attains himself or herself, which is why if you walk into the average organization and you ask them, who are your best leaders, Mm -hmm. immediately they will point at the ones who are the most successful leaders in terms of how much they earn, what titles they have. But that just means that they have managed up well. It usually doesn't tell us what effect they have on their teams. We only do this well when it comes to professional sports teams and we you know, compare different coaches or managers of so football, basketball, baseball, soccer. Then, you know, there are very, very clear KPIs to judge how leaders affect their teams. And we should be doing the same in business. And and I think it also, speaking of the sports analogy, it also says something, the fact that you're starting to see teams, uh, male pro sports teams, adding female coaches to the roster of their their organizations. Absolutely. And so far, if we look at the data or the evidence, uh, that has clearly had a positive effect when organizations, when teams have done it, even though we're still fighting with perceptions because, you know, perceptions often trump realities or they create realities because stereotypes become self-fulfilling. Tomas, great to have you with us. It's a fantastic book. All the best with it. Thank you, sir.
Thank you so much. Thank you. Tomas Chamorro, Pramusic, uh, joining us. The book is Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It. Uh, the book is available in bookstores and online now for your purchase. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 